0: Did you know that you can grind up crickets into a powder and then use that powder to make food, and you'd never know that you're eating crickets? Crickets are one of the most sustainable and nutritious protein sources in the world, and EXO, E-X-O, is making tasty, nutrient-dense cricket protein bars made with only natural ingredients. They're made by a chef with three Michelin stars, and they're good for the environment, and they're good for you. So head to exoprotein.com slash So Smart to try four different bars for less than $10. That's exoprotein.com slash so smart. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode
1: ninety.
0: Bring her back online. Can you hear me?
1: Yes. I'm sorry, I'm not feeling quite myself.
0: You can lose the accent. This is the first scene in HBO's new series, Westworld. Do you know where you are?
1: I'm in a dream.
0: That's right, Dolores. You're in a dream. Would you like to wake up... In the show, Westworld is a theme park in the future in which people pay huge sums of money to immerse themselves in a sort of real-world version of a role-playing video game like The Witcher or Skyrim or Grand Theft Auto or Red Dead Redemption or something like that. And when they do this, when they go into this world that's been created for them, they interact with A population of robots that are indistinguishable from human beings. And in this first scene in the show, we see technicians interviewing an android, actually, to be technical, a gynoid named Dolores, who seems to have suffered some kind of malfunction. And they inspect the androids and their states of mind, their programming, their codes, by talking to them directly. Would you like to wake up from this dream?
1: Yes, I'm terrified.
0: There's nothing to be afraid of, Dolores, as long as you answer my questions correctly, understand? Yes. Good. First, have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? Have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? Well, that is what this episode is going to be about. We're going to talk to a neuroscientist who, before he became a neuroscientist, worked in artificial intelligence, and he's the perfect person to talk to about all these things. But that's coming up in a minute. I just wanted to take a second and talk about this thing, this Westworld phenomenon that I am obsessed with. Oh, it's so my jam. And you know it is, because if you've ever listened to the show, you know I'm into all these things that the show explores. In, in the show, they ask the androids all the time, have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? And it's a on-the-fly Turing test to see if they've become conscious. And that idea comes up a lot in the show because Westworld ultimately explores what is consciousness. And will artificial intelligence ever reach a state that we could consider conscious? in the way that we think of ourselves as such. You may recall all the way back in the 4th episode of the show years ago, we had cognitive psychologist Bruce Hood on the program, and I asked him this question. Uh, since you're a, a super expert in this, I would love to hear your thoughts on um, one of my favorite concepts in science fiction. Do you mm-hmm. do you think that perhaps a similarly complex interconnected network uh, could give rise to consciousness and be self-aware like a very complex AI or something yeah. like that. You, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'd have to say I agree with you um, because this, I, I, I'm a materialist so I don't believe that uh, there are spirits and souls and if you are a materialist and you believe the brain is a very complex system of of structures and, and neural networks and frankly, you know, the, the number of potential patterns is you know almost infinite you can't say infinite but it's almost infinite uh then yes uh there's no reason why a sufficiently sophisticated system could become self aware um, because otherwise you'd have to have a non-materialist account, which would then introduce um, pixie dust and and spooks and souls and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And whilst they may exist, I'm not denying that they don't exist. I just haven't seen any reliable, good evidence for them. And we do know that if you change the brain, you change the self. Uh, you know, so there's a plenty of there's a lot of good evidence for materialism and precious little for non-materialism. In that episode, Bruce Hood goes on to say that there is one big caveat. Of course, the brain is incredibly complex, and it takes many years to build up that complexity. One hundred billion neurons wired together into one hundred trillion connections, or about a thousand connections per neuron, makes the possible number of patterns of connection in the human brain more numerous than the number of atoms estimated to exist in the entire universe itself. Yes, that's patterns, not connections. So that's how that number can work out to be so big. So that's why consciousness is considered to be the hard problem of science, harder than anything else we've ever tried to solve, so difficult that some scientists think it's unsolvable. It also means that we've made very little progress into understanding the nature of consciousness, why it exists, how the goop in your head gives rise to thoughts and emotions, what is the self, and so on some of our oldest hypotheses are still just as likely as the ones put forth in recent years. It's just so difficult to sort out what is a reasonable idea when it comes to these mysteries. In fact, one of our most recent hypotheses that got a lot of press in 2014 was featured in Westworld in the show, the creator of the park, Robert Ford, is played by Anthony Hopkins, and he often brings up theories concerning the mysteries of consciousness. Here he is talking about the one that I just mentioned. I read a theory once that the human intellect was like peacock feathers, just an extravagant display intended to attract a mate. All of art, literature, of Mozart, William Shakespeare, Michelangelo, and the Empire State Building. Just an elaborate mating ritual maybe it doesn't matter that we have accomplished so much for the basest of reasons but of course the peacock can barely fly it lives in the dirt pecking insects out of the muck consoling
1: itself with its great
0: beauty and early in the show Hopkins mentions an idea that caused a big stir in 1976 and I was thrilled when they mentioned this it came from psychologist Julian Jaynes' book, *The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind*. The idea that primitive man believed his thoughts to be the voice of the gods—I thought it was debunked. As no, a theory for understanding the human mind, perhaps, but not as a blueprint for building an artificial one. You see, Arnold, was... the bicameral mind was such a challenging idea. And so mind-bending that, well, we're still talking about it, right? We're talking about it right now. It's in this show. It's in this episode of Westworld. And it's contentious. Plenty of scientists today, they just think it's ridiculous. But plenty of others give it some credit. And in philosophy, it gets a lot of credit. The idea is that bicameralism, bicameral meaning two chambers, two rooms, is a theory of consciousness in which Part of the mind, part of the brain is giving commands and the other part is hearing those commands and either obeying them or disobeying them. And so when you hear those thoughts without a concept of the brain or the mind, you assume they come from elsewhere. Now, we don't know what the Greeks truly thought or felt in their minds and their subjective experiences as conscious beings, but Jane's and other researchers speculate that because they didn't think of themselves as even having minds at all, they still didn't have any knowledge of the brain. In fact, they didn't even know what the brain was for, that the mind as an idea, as a concept had yet to be invented, and so they just had bodies. And when they saw things, they had memories of things, they felt seeing and remembering took place inside their eyeballs. When they felt afraid, that feeling happened in their hearts and in their stomachs. When they felt inspired, that was in their chest because they went, (sighs) when they were inspired, inspiration. You see, these are all pretty much supported by the things that we read in their literature from the records that we can find. And Jane said that since... These people probably didn't have a concept of a mind or a word for it. They likely assumed when they had inner thoughts, like, I would like a slice of carrot cake, they didn't think that came from their inner selves. Instead, it came from the voice of an external agent. Instead of, I would like a slice of carrot cake, they heard, they intuited, go eat some carrot cake. that came from somewhere. And if it didn't come from A mind, remember they don't have a concept of this, they assumed the source of those seemingly unbidden thoughts came from the most logical source they could think of, a god. Or so Jane said. Now, we sometimes think in this way today, a version of it, you know, we say... That our drives and our desires and our bad habits and all that stuff come from particular parts of our brain. And ourselves, our conscious brains, must deal with those drives, must overcome them. And we can see that if you label those things as gods, it's not much of a stretch to see where Janes was coming from. And <laughs> here's where he's coming from. Here's the thing that shook everything up when he put out the book. He said that because they didn't have a concept of consciousness, they weren't conscious. Consciousness came later. The philosopher Daniel Dennett, writing about the bicameral theory, said that he thought that the idea was completely plausible. He said, quote, to put it really somewhat paradoxically, you can't have consciousness until you have the concept of consciousness, end quote. In the same essay, he compares all of this to the idea of history. Janes said that history as a concept had to be invented before we could think in historical terms. Yes, there was history before historians, but Dennett asks, quote, is there a history of lions and antelopes? Just as many years have passed for them as for us, and things have happened to them, but it is very different. Their passage of time has not been conditioned by their recognition of the transition. It has not been conditioned and tuned and modulated by a reflective consideration of that very process. So, history itself, our having histories, is in part a function of our recognizing that very fact. You can't have baseball until you have the concept of baseball, you can't have money before you have the concept of money. End quote. So if Jaynes was right, and if Dennett is reading him correctly, the fact that we can't imagine consciousness at a certain point in our history means that it didn't exist. Without it, we can't frame ourselves in those terms. And we aren't truly conscious. like I said, maybe all this is nonsense. But one of the most incredible things about neuroscience is that ideas like these, which would have been trapped in philosophy and speculative psychology, are actually being tested right now. And even weirder ideas are emerging from that investigation. Even stranger questions are now possible because sometimes we actually get answers. For instance, one of the first questions I think anyone asks once they start to think in weird, abstract terms is, do we all see the same colors? Like, when I see what I call green, do you see the same exact thing or something different? And since we both call it the same thing, how would we ever know if we actually had two different experiences when looking at that wavelength of light? Out here, In the world of lay people or, you know, non-scientists, that seems like a, whoa, dude, bong, rip, magnets, how do they work kind of question. But if you ask it of a neuroscientist, you'll get a concrete answer. So do we all see the same color?
1: We actually know that even among people that are color normal, um, that there are wide variations in our color perceptions.
0: That's neuroscientist Donald Hoffman.
1: I'm Don Hoffman, and I'm a professor at the University of California, Irvine. And you can just call me Don.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And Don has come up with a, well, it's an idea, it's a theory, it's a hypothesis that is maybe even more challenging than the bicameral theory of consciousness. And we're going to talk all about that in a second. But here's the rest of what he had to say about seeing colors.
1: For example, among color color normal males, there are two alleles of the red cone photopigment gene, and they differ by a single nucleotide, but that changes one amino acid in the the pigment, and that changes the receptive properties, the the peak sensitivity of of that. And so when you actually test these men, you can actually – about two-thirds of the men have one allele, one-third have the other. You take them into the lab, do genetic testing – separate them into the two groups, and you find that they actually make different color matches. So even among the color, so-called color normal you know, males and females, there are these wide differences. And then, of course, 7% of, of males are uh, red-green colorblind, and about half a percent of females are red-green c- colorblind. And then there are some females that apparently have four color receptors instead of just the normal three, and they actually have an extra dimension of color perception that The rest that no male has, and that most females don't have, and it's so there. You know, if I ask you to imagine a specific color that you've never seen before, right? Nothing happens. I, you know, smoke comes out of my ears, but (laughs) nothing happens. Right. Uh, But these women apparently are living in a world of colors that the rest of us can't even imagine concretely. So yes, we, you know, we all use words the same way when we describe colors and it's easy to assume that we're seeing the same colors, but uh, we actually know that that's false.
0: My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. In this episode, we are exploring reality itself, consciousness, what is real, what is perception, what is reality. All of that is the focus of this episode. And we're going to talk to Donald Hoffman, a neuroscientist who has a strong background in artificial intelligence, about his new theory, his new hypothesis, his new idea called conscious Realism, which, well, it's just too complicated to even get started right now. He's going to tell you all about it, and I promise you it is going to twist your mind right after this commercial. This podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. It is easy to use Squarespace. Building a website with Squarespace is a simple and intuitive process. You can add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse. You get a free custom domain, and they make adding that domain very simple. You just sign up for a year, and you receive a custom domain free for a year. You can design a best-in-class online store with Squarespace's award-winning templates, customizable settings, and more, all without a single plugin. And they have seamless commerce tools, from nationally recognized brands to your favorite local shops. Squarespace is trusted by hundreds of thousands of savvy shop owners around the world, including All the tools you need to track inventory, process orders, and send custom emails in one intuitive interface, Squarespace Commerce allows you to understand every aspect of your business. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code SOSMART to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Set your website apart. (laughs) You all know how important seeking real knowledge is to me, and that's why I continue to watch lectures from The Great Courses Plus. And this is a really great way to gain insights into so many fascinating ideas, fascinating concepts through their many fascinating courses, and they keep adding more each month. If you want to discover The Great Courses Plus too, they're offering my listeners a full month of free video courses when you sign up using my special URL. It is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. The Great Courses Plus has engaging video lectures from award-winning professors, and this offer allows you to get this month of lectures for free. You can watch any of their courses, hundreds of courses on a variety of topics like history, science, psychology, economics, even photography. When you sign up, I recommend that you watch The Hidden Factor, why thinking differently is your greatest asset. You get tools to train your brain to think differently, helping you work better as an individual and as part of your team. So how do you do that? What's in the course? Professor Scott E. Page, a professor of political science and complex systems, takes you through ideas that will be instantly applicable to work. Stuff like Fermi's Barbers, The Wisdom of Crowds, Diversity Prediction Theorem, Homophily, Groupthink, Diversity, and more. You can watch this and whatever else you want with that free month. Anytime, anywhere, from your mobile device, tablet, laptop, or TV. Sign up today to start your free month of courses. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com smart. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And on this episode, we are interviewing Professor Donald Hoffman, a cognitive scientist at the Department of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California. He has a PhD from MIT in computational psychology, and he's been studying artificial intelligence and human cognition for a very long time, leading up to a new theory that he's developed about human consciousness and what it really is. He recently gave a talk at TED, and the name of the talk is Do We See Reality As It Is? It has been viewed at this point more than 2.2 million times. So, that question. Have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? <laughs> yes, he has. That's pretty much all he does. All right, let's pick his brain. Uh, I'm wondering, and I, I, I've just been very eager to hear from someone who would know exactly the answer to this question or to have great speculation on this, the, there's a. what do you think of that whole bicameral uh, theory of mind, the idea that we were monists for a very long time until the the idea of dualism uh, became common enough that we started to free frame our concept of consciousness in that way.
1: Well, the the book, of course, was quite popular and had quite a following uh, among scientists. It it doesn't have much cachet at all. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's interesting speculation, and and it's fine to speculate, but um, the the evidence is 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 pretty much against those kinds of, of claims um, we, we've made a lot more you know, strides into you know what neuroscience really tells us about the nature of our of our perceptions and and also you know our thoughts about about consciousness and do we really I mean he, I mean he, he does claim that um, you know the, the Greeks perhaps um, heard the voices of gods because they externalized their own internal thoughts, things like that. Um, interesting speculation, but uh, <laughs> you won't find uh, any serious scientist to who has, has, has taken that as the foundation of their work.
0: Well, that's a good, that is a good segue into your uh, stuff because you have been similar. I wouldn't say exactly it's not a, a, an identical kind of challenge um, but you 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 certainly have introduced ideas into academia and you as you've demonstrated you um you are a uh empirical scientific explorer of things you're a neuroscientist you don't uh you're not a uh one of these sort of Rupert Sheldrake type not to, not to disparage Rupert Sheldrake but uh but you um um Despite all that, you have these, uh, some very challenging ideas, and I'm going to run through this sort of uh, in a way so we can, we can ramp up to it. Um, you say that in your TED talk that we've, um, we've made very little progress in understanding the relationship between brain activity and conscious experience. And even though we've really, really worked hard on this problem, it seems like, why is it we've made such little progress? And why are, why are there so many of these, um, ideas that can get really fringy, uh, and, and, and speculative, yet they're all kind of, considered in, um, they're almost all regarded equally at this point, even if there's contention among neuroscientists. Uh, why is that, why has there been such little progress on this specific problem?
1: Well, we, we actually call it the hard problem of consciousness, partly because we've made no progress in actually proposing a specific scientific theory that has any beef to it at all. Um, and there is some speculation about why we've made no progress. One speculation is that uh, we just don't have the conceptual systems that are necessary to solve this problem. We don't expect monkeys to solve problems in quantum mechanics, uh, and it might be that Homo sapiens simply is not equipped with the concepts needed to, to solve the problem of how is consciousness related to our brain activity. That that's certainly possible, and. I can't rule that out. I mean, I do take evolutionary theory quite seriously, and yeah. that it's certainly quite possible that we don't have the concepts. But I think that um, there's a different reason, and that is that we've simply made some false assumptions. So, so, and that was how I began to look at this, because I mean, I, like everybody else, was trying to figure out how brain activity could cause our conscious experiences. And I couldn't think of anything intelligent to say about that. I mean, much less frame a theory. But And when you look at all the, the so-called theories out there, uh, for example, integrated information theory or orchestrated collapse of microtubule states and so forth, <clears throat> when you actually look at them, there's, there's, uh, there's no beef. There's, there's nothing – for example, there's, there's no specific account for any particular conscious experience like, uh, say, the taste of chocolate. What, what integrated information state of the brain um, – is identical to chocolate that's never been put out there. You know, I've asked Tannoni in person just a few weeks ago. What? So, I mean, there's not one concrete. They have no concrete case that they can they can point to. So, so we now know that this causal integrated structure is chocolate, and, and this other one is the taste of of a lemon, and here's the principal reasons why. There's nothing remotely like that, and, and no idea about how to even get that. So, so I think that the the reason that we've not made any progress, is that we've made a very, very simple but false assumption. We've assumed that our perceptual systems give us some indication about the nature of reality as it is. That we we evolved, of course, to stay alive, to be fit, and to have offspring, and that in the process of, of evolving perceptual systems that kept us alive, we evolved perceptual systems that showed us reality as it is not exhaustively we, we don't see all of the truth of course no one believes that but that our perceptions of a world in terms of space and time and physical objects that seem to have causal powers like you know a white the, the cue ball hits the eight ball and knocks it into the corner pocket we we, we think that there's genuine causality of physical objects in space and time because that's the way we see the world that assumption is the one that i've been looking at and then the reason I've been looking at that is that we've assumed that certain objects in space and time, namely neurons, have the causal power to create our conscious experiences. And so that was the question that I went after. Is that assumption right? When we make that assumption, we can't get anywhere. When we assume that neurons cause our conscious experiences, and neural activity causes our behavior, we, we run into deep, deep problems. Uh, in fact, we we can't make any theoretical progress. So I said, let's step back. And ask ourselves the question, does evolution by natural selection favor perceptions that are telling us about reality as it is? Does perception evolve to see the truth?
0: So so this is your big challenge because the – I mean this is what I learned in school is the idea that um, – that you know the brain, yes, the brain constructs reality. Not, it does, it, and it's uh, it's sort of a virtual, it's a virtual reality. I and that was sort of that was that was communicated pretty well, but it also uh, that. Um, Our ancestors who saw a more uh, accurate picture of or had a more accurate um, perception of the objective reality that we don't completely bring into our minds, but the ones that had a more accurate perception of it were more successful. And so it's over time, it's becoming you become more fit by becoming having more accurate perceptions that better fit reality and so on. So and you you challenge this completely, correct?
1: That's right. You've, I think, nicely summarized the standard view uh, in the field that those of our ancestors who saw more accurately had a competitive advantage over those who saw less accurately and therefore were more likely to pass on their genes that coded for the more accurate perceptual systems. And so we can be quite confident that we don't see all of reality as it is, but we do see some of reality, namely the part of reality that we need. We see it accurately. And that was the very question the, the various assertion that I then question, we don't have to wave our hands. Evolution by natural selection is a mathematically precise theory. We have the tools of evolutionary game theory, evolutionary graph theory, and genetic algorithms. and And so we can pose a precise mathematical question and ask, under what conditions would natural selection favor veridical? that's that's the technical, the geek term that that scientists use, vertical perceptions, namely perceptions that are accurate to reality. Not exhaustively, but but wherever we might need them. And so I posed that question with some of my graduate students, and we, we ran Monte Carlo simulations where we simulated hundreds of thousands of random worlds <clears throat> and put organisms in those worlds that could see all of the truth, um, part of the truth, or none of the truth. And the ones and, – and, and there was these things called fitness functions, which tell you how many fitness points you get for various actions you take, right? That's, that's the, the name of the game in evolution is that um, in addition to reality, there's a fitness function that that governs uh, you know your success in reproduction. And what we found in our simulations was that uh, organisms that saw reality as it is could never out-compete organisms that saw none of reality and were just tuned to fitness, uh, as long as they were of equal complexity. And then, so then I I conjectured a theorem. And the, the theorem that I conjectured is that an organism that sees the truth can never be more fit than an organism of equal complexity that doesn't see the truth and is just tuned to fitness. And I worked with a mathematician friend, uh, Chaitan Prakash, and uh, proved the theorem. And so it's under review right now, but it's actually a theorem that if if our perceptual systems evolved by natural selection, then the probability that we see reality as it is in any way is zero, precisely zero.
0: Okay, so uh, (laughs) this is a lot to unwrap. So uh, the – now, okay – this is now f- one of the things is first of all, that's the first thing that's exciting about this is that this is an idea that you would think would be trapped in philosophy forever, but uh, here it is, uh, way outside, not even uh, it's not even just in psychology, but it's it's over here in uh, computer modeling and uh, evolutionary uh, uh science and in neuroscience, and so you've pulled it way over here and uh, put it into a framework where it can actually be peer reviewed, and that's pretty fantastic. So how does this, how does this differ from just the idea that, um, that Umvelt idea, how does this just differ from the concept of there's not, um, of course, we don't see objective reality, we see a subjective reality, we don't, we see a very small slice of it. And, uh, and, and how does it, um, what elements of this theory that you've put together, uh, expand on that sort of foundation?
1: Well, so. The Umfeld idea that von Uxgill had, um, I think, was was very, very insightful for its time. He was pointing out that different organisms effectively have different perceptual worlds because they inhabit different niches. So what it's like to be a bat is very different from what it's like to be Homo sapiens. And so their perceptual worlds will will be very different. And uh, many neuroscientists and cognitive neuroscientists today uh, like von Uckschool's idea, but they, the way they take it is they say um, the notion of an umfeld means that different organisms see different parts of reality right? The bat sees different parts of reality than we do. So their their perceptual world might be very, very different from ours because reality itself is very, very rich. And so <clears throat> different organisms can be tuned to different parts of that reality. And this was sort of J.J. J. Gibson's idea, too, in his ecological optics point of view, that different organisms would see different um, whatever they needed, you know, the affordances that they needed in for, for their specific niche. And so I agree up to a point that different organisms are in effective, effectively different perceptual worlds, but where I disagree is that what these worlds are are seeing different parts of the truth. I, I don't think that they're seeing the truth at all. The, the, I think a much better metaphor is to say that we have different user interfaces. So if you have you know, a laptop computer and you're writing an email and the the icon for that email that you're writing to your friend is blue and rectangular and in the middle of your desktop does that mean that the email itself inside your computer is blue and rectangular and in the middle of the computer well of course not that's that's silly Anybody who thought that is mistaking the point of the interface. It's not there to show you the truth. It's there to hide the truth. You don't want to know about the diodes and resistors and voltages. If you had to know all that, you'd never get the email written. If you had to toggle voltages, good luck. You'd never, you'd never finish the email. So the desktop interface is there to hide the truth, give you eye candy that lets you get the job done, whatever you need to do. And that's what evolution does for us. Our perceptual systems are desktops. They're interfaces. Space and time is, is our 3D desktop, Uh time is extra dimension. So three-dimensional space, desktop with time. And then physical objects like tables and chairs are the icons in our desktop. And we evolved this perceptual interface not for it to show us the truth, but to hide that truth. We don't need to know the truth, and in fact – Knowing the truth would get in the way, just like toggling voltages would stop you from doing an email. So that's where I differ from the Umwelt point of view, at least the standard interpretation of that point of view by, by my colleagues. They, they will say, yes, different organisms see the world in different ways. They effectively inhabit different perceptual worlds. But what they're really thinking is they're inhabiting different parts of the truth, and I'm saying, no, none of us, no species at any time has seen any aspect of the truth. We have user interfaces that are species specific that evolve for each different species to hide the truth from the species and give it little simple symbols that it can use to stay alive long enough to reproduce. <clears throat> and, you,
0: and, <laughs> and you've and you modeled this. This isn't just um, – that's what makes this so great is that this is not just uh, some pipe smoking uh, in, in a – and some, uh, you know, perusing old uh, textbooks and pipe smoking in front of the of the in front of the dorm room or whatever. This is um, um, you've modeled this, you've modeled this uh, in a in a very detailed way, and yes. and this has led you into this territory. Um, and I, I'm hoping that up to this point, people listening, they they followed along, and that this makes sense, but now we're going to go into a place that's going to be more difficult. And this is this concept of conscious realism Right. where, um, uh, and I think that um, the way that this made more, when I was looking through the different things you've said, uh, the thing that you said that made this make the most sense to me was when you were used, you used the, the concept of a, uh, of a corpus colostomy, a split brain patient right. to help make sense. Of this. So if you could use, if you could start there, I think that we could maybe get into this.
1: Right. So, the reason I started to thinking, thinking about consciousness as a fundamental nature of, of reality is that I mean, most of us, myself included, uh, start off as physicalists. We assume that space and time and matter is the ultimate nature of reality. And the reason we believe that is because that's what we see. We look around and we see space and time and we see physical objects and we assume that we've evolved to see reality as it is. And so we assume that space and time and matter is the ultimate nature of reality. And it's a simple mistake. We've mistaken our interface for the truth. It's like a person who thinks there really is a blue icon inside the computer. It's That's what physicalism is. It's that silly mistake.
0: And you're um, saying that that goes all the way down to atoms and quarks and, and everything.
1: Right. It goes down to anything that's inside space and time. So, so even you know, when the physicists like Rutherford told us a, a, a century ago that, you know, you know, a, a piece of metal that looks hard and, and solid is not really mostly empty space. There's all these atoms and subatomic particles whizzing around in, in, in empty space. I mean, and so it doesn't, it's nothing like what we perceive. And, and that, that is true, and, that, and that's perhaps surprising. But I'm saying something even weirder. I, I'm saying that that is still in the desktop because those atoms are whizzing around in space and time. You haven't gotten outside of the desktop until you've let go of space and time itself. So, so I actually have a clear proposal that physicists are going to discover that space-time is doomed. That is not part of the fundamental ontology that they can use in booting up a theory of physics. And already they're, they're all over that. Nima Arkani-Hamed, a professor of physics at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, has lectures on exactly that point, that space-time is doomed, and they're trying to figure out what will replace it. So, so That was why we've always believed that physics, physical stuff that's non-conscious is fundamental. But now that we have to give that up, then the question is, well, what ontology shall we have? What is the nature of the ultimate uh, reality? And the the first answer is, you know, again, Homo sapiens may not be capable of understanding it. That's that's one possibility. We just can't know. but there's another possibility, and that is, you know, I may be wrong about everything I believe, and that's certainly possible. That maybe everything I believe is fundamentally wrong. But if there's, if I'm right about anything, I'm, I believe that I have conscious experiences. I believe that I have experiences of pain, uh, taste of chocolate, smell of garlic, feelings of love, and so forth. I mean, if I, I mean, I could be wrong about. If I'm wrong about that, I'm wrong about everything. We might as well just drink beer, have pizza, and have a good time. I because mean, mm-hmm. science is impossible. Mm-hmm. So so I decided, to, I said, look, um, evolution by natural selection entails that our perceptions of space and time and matter are not an insight into reality. Physicalism is false. Let's try to boot up a different theory of reality, but make it rigorous. I want a mathematically precise theory of reality. And so I said, let's start with consciousness. Because, you know, if if I'm wrong about having consciousness, I'm wrong about everything. So let's just start there. And so I have a mathematically precise theory of consciousness. i It's actually a, a mathematical model of consciousness that you can write down on the back of a napkin, but it's, it's mathematically precise. And the, then a very strong claim that every aspect of conscious experiences and the dynamics of consciousness can be modeled without exception by this mathematical theory. So I'm probably wrong. I mean that's the whole point of science is to be – Absolutely precise, down to the mathematical nitpicking, be very, very precise, make bold, bold claims so that people can then you put a target on yourself or not on your theory you put a target on your theory so people can try to shoot it down that's the whole spirit of science so be very, very bold and precise so that we can you know shoot these theories down and then you know evolve them make them so so i've got this theory of consciousness, and then the bold claim that consciousness is fundamental that the ultimate nature of reality is consciousness, what I call conscious agents. And if I'm right, then one prediction is that we'll be able to use this theory of consciousness to, with mathematical precision, get back what we call you know, quantum mechanics, general relativity, and eventually even quantum gravity. In other words, get, we'll solve the mind-body problem not by starting with Physical stuff like neurons and trying to get consciousness to emerge from it, but going the other direction. Start with consciousness, mathematically, precisely defined and and modeled, and show that we can get back quantum mechanics, general relativity, and and eventually quantum gravity from it and solve the problem that way.
0: (laughs) And so if it's not atoms and molecules, those are just um, representations on our desktop. Um, What is it? (laughs)
1: <laughs> so the idea would be that if it's not some um, physical thing like space and time and matter, I, I'm proposing that the ultimate nature of reality is actually something that we feel somewhat intimately acquainted with, namely conscious experiences, fears, emotions, the smell of chocolate, the taste of garlic, and so forth. Um, I'm not saying that we have you know deep, deep insights ourselves into those conscious experiences, but we do have conscious experiences. By using that as our foundation and making a mathematical model of it, we can then start to get a science of consciousness um, that that is a rigorous science where we can actually get surprises, right? We might find out about things about our own consciousness that we would never have known if we hadn't got a a mathematically rigorous theory of it.
0: How do we – what about – this is going to – I mean, please forgive my complete ignorance, but um, how do we – what about – how do we escape the possibility that math is also part of this um, desktop, that, that it's not yes. – um, that math itself is a human construct and doesn't help us model reality because it's just part of the it, – it's also trapped inside the, uh, the, 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 the desktop metaphor?
1: Great. That's a, a very, very important question. And it does distinguish my point of view from certain religious points of view that have tried to use evolution to take down science in a a very different way. So Alvin Plantinga, for example, has used evolutionary arguments to say that all of our cognitive abilities are not reliable. And so, therefore, evolution sort of shoots itself in the foot. And my argument is very, very different. My argument only applies to one cognitive capacity, namely our perceptual capacities it doesn't apply to our logic and math. And in fact, when you look at logic and math, a different analysis from evolution seems to apply. Um, There are selection pressures to do certain elementary operations in logic and mathematics correctly. Two apples give me roughly twice the fitness payoff of one apple. Right? It's about fitness, so that's the key thing. Evolution is all about fitness, not about truth. But when you're arguing and and when you're doing reasoning about fitness, you do need to get that right. And so even though you're not arguing or reasoning about the truth, you do have to do the mathematics and logic correctly to to get the fitness correct. And so although evolution by natural selection uniformly pushes or, or shapes our perceptions not to be true, it does not uniformly push our math and logic not to be true. There are small selection pressures. Now, by the way, on the other hand, I'm not saying that there are selection pressures to make us mathematical geniuses. Far from it. Uh, What there are are these little enclaves of ability. So, you know, two apples are better than one in terms of fitness or in terms of uh, us as a society, a social group. I mean, we're hunter-gatherers. We cooperated. At the end of the day, I would share what I got with you if you didn't have enough, and the next day I would expect you would share with me. But there's a logic of you know, reciprocation that then evolves. I mean, I gave you some yesterday, the day before. In fact, I've been giving some to you for the last month, and gee, you've never given anything back to me. Now, wait a minute. So, there's a little bit of logic that comes into play here, just a little bit, that says, you know, if I do this, then I expect this from you, and, and vice versa. And so, we get these little, little bastions of logic and mathematics that evolution gives us that, that are not there and designed to show us the truth just to, to make us fit, but But then every once in a while the genes come together and you get a von Neumann or some other brilliant mathematician who really is, you know, a a Kurt Gödel, who really is, you know, from our point of view, an outright genius in these these areas. And so evolution by natural selection shapes our perceptions uniformly away from the truth, but it does not shape math and logic uniformly away from the truth. It gives us a little foothold here and there. And every once in a while the genes come together and you get a real genius <laughs> in these areas um,
0: well, let me let me uh, let's see if we can uh, help people understand this, this idea of conscious agents uh, you, you mentioned that a, a split brain patient you know basically has oh, yes a person has one consciousness uh, and then a split brain patient there're all those great experiments by Gazenigo where they have them do mm-hmm. all these amazing we've talked about it on the show before so there's a uh, in essence, in, in, you can frame them as being a person with two consciousness. This yes. consciousness is that are um, housed within one organism. And you can ex- you, I've seen in some of your work, you extend this. Why not divide it into four and then 16 right. and then 45. And this it sort of reminds me of the the Minsky stuff with the uh, yeah. um, of the uh, to you finally get down to little binary agents. So um, yes. how yes. does how does that plug into your concept of uh, of this conscious realism?
1: That, that's That's a great example. So we all feel as though we're a single consciousness, right? That's, that's the way it feels subjectively. Sometimes we have inner conflicts, but it feels to us like we're you know pretty much one single consciousness. But it turns out that the, the way your brain is organized, there are two hemispheres, a left and a right hemisphere, that are connected by 200 to 225 million fibers, axons. So it's like a – think of it as a, as a cable, a computer cable between two massive computers. Um, and in certain bad cases of epilepsy where you have a part of the brain that's bad, say, on the right hemisphere uh, and, and sends random signals throughout the whole brain that make you go unconscious, they, they couldn't, in some cases, you know, fix it with drugs. And so uh, Joe Bogan, uh, who I had the, the privilege of knowing while he was still alive, um, was a, a famous surgeon who would actually – Cure these people pretty much by, you know, taking off the cranium, <laughs> taking a scalpel and cutting the corpus callosum and and just splitting the two hemispheres, cutting off. And what what it did was it uh, confined the bad electrical activity to just one hemisphere. So one hemisphere might go down, but the other one wouldn't. And what what they found was um, that the two, in careful experiments, the two hemispheres actually, from my my interpretation of it, is they have two separate kinds of consciousnesses in the following sense you can ask a question of the right hemisphere and ask the same question of the left hemisphere and you get different answers for example what do you want to be when you graduate one fellow was asked this the left hemisphere wanted to be a draftsman and the right hemisphere wanted to be a race car driver they couldn't be more couldn't be more different they have different personalities different likes and dislikes they can play twenty questions with each other. You could literally set up a situation where the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere play twenty questions, uh, and 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 it's a real game because the, the the two hemispheres have different contents of consciousness. So so it feels to us like we're a single unified consciousness, and we might be, but just a simple knife, a, a scalpel can cut your consciousness in two, and there are two separate spheres of consciousness, uh, and. And so if two, then I, I point out, well, why not? Why not more? Why? How far down does, might it go? I mean, Minsky had the notion of the society of mind. Um, and I have a precise mathematical notion of what I call conscious agents that can be divided further and further until you get down to agents that are literally as simple as is possible. One bit of perception and one bit of action, literally, mm-hmm. you, you know, a zero or one for perception or a zero for one, one for, for action. And then the mathematics allows me to build up conscious agents as complexes as, 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 as humans.
0: That, that is so, um, I, I've got a book here. Um, I've got a really old, uh, I want uh, I'll never find it. Um, oh yeah. Uh, this reminds me so much of, uh, uh, the, um, this old idea of the recursive, uh, recursive universe from, um, yes. from, uh, Oh, this stuff, the, uh, the, the Conway's game of life. Right. Right. Uh, and it feels so, um, it just feels like I, I, I really adore how there are many of these ideas seem to be converging within your theory. And so, um, uh, and that instead of being sort of lost out there in Deepak Chopra land, they seem to be, um, uh, in real, in, you know, real academia. So, um, uh, and I'm wondering, so I'm wondering how has this been received? I mean, how has this been received uh, by your peers and by people maybe in other uh, academic silos? I mean, I think at first glance, this feels like woo-woo. This feels like Deepak Chopra. Mm-hmm. This feels like, um, uh, you know, t- people talking about quantum consciousness and things that have generally been... Um, Very poorly regarded in 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 neuroscience and in psychology and and other social sciences How has it how has this been received and how do you feel about that?
1: Well, the Initial reaction of my colleagues in, in academia is generally surprise and shock but there are, you know, I I'm doing the normal academic thing. I've I've published papers with mathematical models, and I actually go to conferences and to various universities and give colloquia, where I present the mathematical models. And so it raises the the bar. It would be one thing to say, um, you know, I think consciousness is fundamental. That that means that there's there's no beef there. But if to, to say Here's the mathematical model of evolution by natural selection and what it does to our perceptual systems. And that clearly shows, and here's my theorem now. I've got a theorem and a proof that says the probability that our perceptions of space and time and physical objects and physical causality, the probability that that's an insight into the nature of reality is zero. Now, so I put it out there. Anybody that wants to take a pot shot at me can. If, if they think there's some assumption in the theorem or some misstatement in the proof, fair enough. Go for it. No one's found one. And, and this has been out for a long time. I published a paper with my, a couple, couple of my colleagues uh, over a year ago in, a, in one of the most prestigious journals. And ten uh, you know professors from around the world had a chance to, to, to write commentaries and take their best pot shots. And, and then we replied to them. right? And we, we came out. Just fine. Mm-hmm. So we're doing the normal academic thing, of you know, here's the precise mathematical theory, here's the target. Take your shots at it, mm-hmm. and if you if if you hit, great. Then we'll try to evolve evolve the theory. If 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 it's a devastating hit, then maybe we need to abandon it. So we're doing the normal scientific thing of you know trying to be precise and evolving the theory. So far, no one's been able to take it down.
0: Yeah, <laughs> this is the great, and uh, I it's, it, I cannot i am going to rip into this uh, myself. Uh, I want to know um if people who are listening to this are like, "Okay, I want to take a look at this, I want to understand it um, and we have plenty of listeners who are in, in different uh you know uh academic fields I would like how can they find you how can they find your stuff, how can they start looking through it and how can they get into en- uh, how can they get into what you're into
1: so um probably the easiest way all of my papers and interviews and and videos are in fact um listed chronologically on my Vita. So if you just do a Google search for Donald Hoffman, um, H-O-F-F-M-A-N, and then you'll see on my homepage there's a link to my Vita. It just just says Vita. If you click on that, then you have everything I've done with with hot links to free sources. So all of my papers are there. I published a paper, you'll see it on my Vita, uh, in 2010 in the Journal of Theoretical Biology. It's the, the premier journal in the field. Um, this was where all the really major results in evolutionary biology have been published, the theor- theoretical results. And um, we there have our Monte Carlo simulations, where we show that evolution by natural selection um, never favors um, seeing reality as it is when when you're competing against equal, um, you know, c- complex uh, perceptual systems. So it's right there. It's in it's in the premier journal in the field, and you can go and read the mathematics for yourself the there then the there's a psychonomic bulletin and review published my target article last last year with the 10 commentaries and replies it's called the interface theory of perception that's the name of the article and so you can you can download the article and 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 read it and then there's also my mathematical model of consciousness um called conscious realism I see it's it's called no the paper's called objects of consciousness it came out just a year or two ago and it's online for free it's gotten for a geek paper, it's pretty good. It's got 52,000 hits. It's not bad for, for, you know, really geeky mathematics. The thing is math from start to finish. So it's not an easy read, but it's a precise theory of consciousness with a precise uh, roadmap for how we could make connections with physics. So the, the ideas are all out there. The math is, is clear, and, and people can take shots at it because, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to wave my hands. I'm saying, here it is. Here's the mathematical details. Uh, any questions?
0: I think that uh, what you've done is uh, unbelievably fascinating and um, challenging, and I hope that people look look. I hope that people uh, seek you out and try to understand it uh, deeply before they either absorb it without uh, question or dismiss it without question. So uh, I really appreciate uh, you giving us so much of your time. Thank you.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, David. Letter C Cookie
0: starts with C. Let's think of other things that start with C. Uh, uh, who cares about other On things? each episode C of the You are cookie. Not so Smart That's podcast, we close cookie. out the show C with a cookie, cookie, a cookie sent in by a listener cookie. or a reader. If I eat the cookie that Mandy, my wife, bakes from the recipe sent in by you, one of our listeners. then you will receive a signed copy of either You Are Not So Smart, the first book, or You Are Now Last Dumb, the second. So, in this episode, oh yeah, and send those recipes to David at YouAreNotSoSmart.com. This is this episode's recipe. It comes from Sophie Douse. Sophie Douse writes, Hello David, I stumbled upon your podcast not too long ago, and it's definitely become one of my top five podcasts. I wonder where it is. Is it one, two, three, four, or five? I'm going to guess three. And she says, thanks so much for shedding light on this ever-so-deep and utterly fascinating subject, the human mind's dead angles. I like that. In celebration to the multi-layers of your show, I offer you this cookie recipe, Alfa Jores, or Dolce de Leche cookie sandwiches, dipped in chocolate. They come from Argentina. I first tasted them in Brazil, actually, and now... Every once in a while, I'll stumble upon some, like once at the ferry building market in San Francisco or in my hometown, Quebec City, from an Argentinian immigrant who started his little Alfa Jures business. Am I saying that correctly? Alfa Jures? Sorry. Either way, my mouth is watering. I'm sorry. I'm having a hard time getting through this. This isn't my recipe, but a recipe I found on the internet, which was very, very convincing. So I'm sure you will love them. Thanks again for your great show. Here's the recipe. Now, these are. Really cool. It takes a lot of prep on these, but it's worth it. Uh, I watched Mandy make these, and in stages, some of it was done yesterday. Uh, You have to get all the the dough prepared and put it in the refrigerator overnight, and then you take it out, and you have to have a rolling pin and uh, all sorts of stuff. There are several different kinds of things that go into it. You have to lay out the cookies, put uh, heaps of stuff in the middle of the sandwiches after you bake the cookie pieces uh, it's crazy. Uh, the ingredients are flour and baking powder and salt and butter and sugar and orange zest and dolce de leche, bittersweet chocolate, heavy cream, amazing stuff. Okay, let's try this. What does it look like? It looks just like a moon pie. Now, I don't know if you know what a moon pie is. Um, they are a staple of the deep south from which I sprang and... um. They actually, there's a long story behind the Moon Pie and the company that bought them and they have a Moon Pie drop every year in Alabama on New Year's. Anyway, that's what it looks like. But what does it taste like? Let's give it a shot. I can't wait to see what this is. From Argentina and all over the world, Sophie Douse. Here we go. Mmm. Mmm. That is right. That is right. Mmm. 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 You know, the best thing about this, it is a sandwich. Like, it's a very tiny sandwich. It looks like, you know, it's chocolate all over, very dark chocolate all over. But you bite into it, and immediately the cross section is visible. Two cookies with some caramel type stuff in the middle. And it is so dark and chocolatey. Very dark. Um the chocolate actually is kind of too bitter at first. It, it almost, you think, maybe I've eaten poison. And then uh, you very quickly start mixing the flavors of the cookie with um, the filling in the middle. And it all starts to blend together. And it becomes a very mature taste. I imagine like uh, you know, Agatha Christie has, <laughs> would have this cookie uh, on a very petite and elegant, beautiful little plate next to her dainty, um, her tea, and she would drink her tea and take a bite of this, and it would be a whole afternoon, surround, <laughs> she planned her whole after- afternoon around how uh, meticulously created this wonderful cookie is. And it does have many layers to it. Mm. So it's painful in the beginning, then complex, mature, and delicious in the middle, and it has many layers that mix together once you get to know it. This is a cookie that went to uh, a foreign country, it went to a, a, for the first time as a teenager uh, right out of uh, high school and thought that, you know what, I have figured everything out now and I am so much more worldwide than my friends. But then uh, somewhere in college meets someone else who did a very similar trip and they had kind of the same experience and they realize, you know what, I am coming online as a person but it's not unique to me. And then a couple years later, after learning this over and over and over again, they accept that's part of life, and that's makes them that actually makes them come online for real. That's what this cookie is. That's what this cookie feels like. Mm. This is a perfect. This is a this is a coming of age cookie. I'm thinking of this cookie as eating, eating this cookie is a, just a metaphor for um, growing up and shedding all the ridiculous, superficial. Um, Transient and ephemeral concerns of childhood. It has layers like Westworld. It's complex and painful, and comes online like consciousness itself. It's the perfect cookie for this episode. Mm. Thank you so much, Sophie Dallas. A book is on its way.
1: <whistles> ichi, ni, ichi, ni, san, chi.
0: That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Please go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart and pitch in to help bring a reporter to the show. I would like to add some staff to the show. A reporter would be a fantastic addition to the program. And we could put out content more along the lines of some of the uh, some of the podcasts that I've always wanted this this show to sound like and be like Uh, adding a reporter would make that possible. So go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart and help make that possible happen you can find all past episodes at you are not so smart.com and at boingboing.net where you can find other great podcasts like this one boingboingpodcast.com has all the podcasts listed the opening music is clash by caravan palace this music is banjo apocalypse on twitter it's at not blog. i'm at david mccraney and facebook is just you are not so smart Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about crickets one last time. Remember we talked about cricket powder and exoprotein? Well, go to exoprotein.com slash so smart. That's exoprotein.com slash so smart. And you can try four different bars for less than $10 made with nutrient-dense cricket powder. These protein bars were designed by a three-Michelin star chef. Good for the environment. Good for you The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a the therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives, to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com Y-A-N-S-S.